At the end of our conversation, Denise Montel and I talked about her devastating cancer diagnosis and treatment some years ago. She was kind enough to tell me what that was like and what she learned. I didn't like to talk about this experience a whole lot for a long time, but it's so long ago now (laughs) that I have some distance and perspective on it and I can talk about it. I really didn't want an illness to define me, but the fact is that, yeah, when I was 41 years old and I had a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old at home, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that was another chance encounter, um, like how it got discovered, diagnosed, was my sister's an MD and we happened to be on vacation at the beach together. And I was like holding my hair up and she was putting sunscreen on and I'm like, what's this right here? And I had this like lump in my neck and she's a doctor and she was like, oh, whoa. That's, that's, uh, and she didn't say anything right away. She kind of like ran to the internet and tried to figure out what was going on. And, uh, so anyway, I, we rushed back to Johns Hopkins where we were on the faculty at that point and tried to move heaven and earth to get a diagnosis quickly because the world medical world does not move quickly and especially not in August. And, um, anyway, so you know, I was diagnosed with a potentially, you know, with a life-threatening cancer. And wow, that was um, truly out of the blue. I felt completely great, healthy. I, you know, I've always had a healthy diet and, you know, exercise and all the stuff you're supposed to do. Um, and then I had these two little kids. And so it was very challenging. And I had all these people in my lab and that was a terrible feeling. Like, yes, my kids were going to have my husband to take care of them if I didn't make it, but what were the people in my lab going to do? But we persevered and it was remarkable. Of course, I got the world's best cancer care at Johns Hopkins and was much more a party to the decision-making around my medical treatment than probably most people get to be. Uh, I was probably one of the first people to go on maintenance rituxin therapy because uh, I was included in the decision-making process that's now a standard of care. Probably one of the hardest things I had to do was write two grants while I was on chemotherapy. And, and, you know, people are like, oh, you don't really have to write that grant. And I'm like, well, if I, if I'm going to die, I don't have to write this grant, but, (laughs) but I'm not planning on dying and I don't really want, really don't want to. So uh, if I'm going to live, I actually kind of really do need to write this grant. And so, and then I found that it was actually super easy because, well, the first one was anyway, the first one was super easy because it just didn't seem that important. (laughs) You know, it's like when you have a really life and death thing in front of you, this thing that feels life and death, you know, ordinarily suddenly becomes what it is, which is just like a grant proposal that might or might not get funded. And I got the best score I've ever gotten on any grant on that grant. (laughs) So, you know, the second one was harder because I was deeper into the treatment and uh, your brain kind of goes slowly and and that's also super scary if your identity as scientist and your brain starts going slowly. It's okay. You regrow the synapses and it's all okay. But um, so, yeah, it was challenging. And there was a lot of anxiety for quite a while after that. You just never really know if or when you're out of the woods. And you honestly never really do know. And nobody really knows if they're not in the woods right now. <laughs> so that's one thing I learned for sure. You know, some people survive. Some people don't survive and some people come out of it, you know, stronger. And I, I feel like I was surprised myself at how 
steely I could be. Uh, was I didn't I don't never thought of myself as a steely type of person, but um, but you just do what you have to do because you have to do it. So you know it wasn't like you had a choice really in the matter. Um, and we got through it, and, and students joined my lab that year. I mean, what courage on their part, right? They they joined my lab knowing full well what was going on and everything. So, you know, they, oh, I'm so grateful to all the colleagues who took all the tasks away from me that I, and so I could just focus. I had a lot of support. I could focus on my treatment and my my physical health and the things that only I could do, like the research papers and the grants, things like that, that only I could do. And people took every other burden off of me, every administrative burden, every teaching burden, every making the kids lunches, driving them to school, like, you know, whatever, every Thing got taken care of so that I could do those two things and come out okay. And, and so I really, really appreciate that. So that knowledge of what it takes to survive such a huge, unexpected threat has helped in various ways. Like when COVID hit and we were all like in isolation and then we were talk- doing lab meetings on Zoom and whatever, I call on that experience and I say, sometimes life is just going to throw you a curveball that you had no way to see coming. And so what do you do? And one of the things you do is you ask for help from all the people around you and you pull together and you help each other because that's the way to get through something like that. Denise had one other perspective on getting through her experience with cancer. Maybe we'll be able to pay it forward and come up with a therapy that'll help the next person who's got that devastating diagnosis. 